Tonight's talk is on dukkha, usually translated as suffering. So about a half hour ago, I finished putting together this talk in the computer and getting it all ready to print out, and none of the printers would work. <laughs> so I'm walking around under my bed, dukkha, dukkha. <laughs> we finally got it to print, but it was touch and go for a few moments there. The Buddha said, I teach one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. We all want to be happy, but happiness is something that is very misunderstood. And this is what the Buddha explored deeply, this question of suffering, of happiness, of peace. So after the Buddha attained enlightenment, it said that he went back to uh, visit with these five ascetics that he had practiced with for a number of years. And he gave his first discourse on the Four Noble Truths. It said that all of them had enlightenment experiences just by listening to his discourse. So pretty powerful discourse that must be my hope from this talk is that it will inspire all of us to uh, seek for the deepest truth, leading to the deepest kind of freedom. So the Four Noble Truths, most of you have probably heard of them. There's the Noble Truth of Suffering, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Suffering or Craving, the noble truth of the end of suffering and the noble truth of the eightfold path to the end of suffering. And sometimes the Buddha was described as a physician and that this four noble truths was his prescription for us humans, that it described the sickness, the cause of the sickness, the medicine, and how to take the medicine. So the sickness, suffering, cause, craving, the medicine, end of suffering, and the path, how to take that medicine. It said that the truth of suffering is to be understood. The cause of suffering is to be abandoned. The end of suffering is to be realized, and the path is to be developed. So tonight we're going to talk mostly about the first noble truth of dukkha, which is to be understood. As I said, this word dukkha is most often translated as suffering, but as you will see, there's some problems with that translation. It's often best just to leave the word in Pali because it has so, such a broad range of meaning, such a deep meaning that suffering doesn't quite catch it. So sometimes it's also translated as unsatisfactoriness or uneasiness, stress, unreliability, 
Dukkha is the foundation of our practice. It's the motivation for liberation. It's liberation itself through understanding Dukkha. So I'm going to talk about Dukkha in a couple different ways. First, I'm going to talk about it as the first noble truth. And then I'm going to talk about three kinds of Dukkha that the Buddha described. So from the first noble truth, a very explicit definition of what Dukkha is. The Buddha said, Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, and despair are suffering. Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. Not getting what one wishes is suffering. In brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality body, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness as possessions of myself is suffering. To me, this is an amazing description of suffering. Each part goes deeper into wisdom and truth. Each part gets more and more subtle. The first part we can readily understand as suffering, and by the end, we might be questioning, well, what does he mean? So the Buddha masterfully explores this subject, beginning with what we could call kind of surface dukkha and leading into existential suffering with being human. Dukkha is to be understood. And to understand, we must engage. It's not our usual way. It's usually dukkha is to be avoided. That's our usual way. If only it worked. It doesn't work. So the heart of practice is to face suffering so that we can understand deeply and through understanding, touch freedom. So each level of dukkha that we explore brings deeper levels of peace and freedom. Personally, I love talking about dukkha. I was sitting in the dining room the other day uh, mentioning that I was going to do this talk. I said to Pascal, I love talking about dukkha. And Pascal said, I love talking about dukkha too. We all love talking about dukkha. So it's not a depressing talk that I mean to give here. We love talking about dukkha because we understand that to deeply explore dukkha leads to freedom. Ajahn Chah, famous Thai forest master said, no matter how hard you try to free yourself until you see the value of freedom and the pain of bondage, you won't be able to let go. So dukkha is the pain of bondage, and freedom is letting go. So 
So let's look at some different aspects of dukkha from this first noble truth that I just read. So suffering as it is conventionally understood. The Buddha said birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, and despair are suffering. So basically this is um, conventional suffering that we would understand of the body and the mind. So having taken birth in these human forms, we suffer in this body. We suffer bodily aches and pains. And uh, until we're fully liberated, we, we suffer in the mind, sorrow, lamenta lamentation, despair, and other forms of, of mental suffering. Most of us wouldn't argue with this, that this is dukkha or suffering. So physical unpleasantness, aches, pains, sickness, having to take care of these bodies, that they're uncontrollable, and mental unpleasantness. The next part of the equation goes a little bit deeper into this truth of suffering, a little bit deeper into our predicament as humans. The next part was contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. Not getting what one wishes is suffering. So we can usually relate to this. We can understand this as suffering, that we have to put up with uh, unpleasant things that we don't want to put up with. And then we have pleasant things and we get separated from them. They end or leave or go somewhere else that we can't always get what we want. Rolling Stones made famous. We'd like this world to conform to our wishes and it doesn't always do so. How many times have you tried to make perfect conditions for yourself here on retreat? You seem to get it right and then it changes, right? So what this truth suggests is that we can't order life to our specifications, that we can't control life to be how we want it to be, and that we can't find permanent happiness in mundane conditions because life is always changing. So here the definition of dukkha in includes uh, uncontrollability of life and the unreliability of life and our vulnerability in face of that. The last part of the formula, in brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality as possessions of myself is suffering. So any clinging to experience and a sense of self in any experience, the Buddha described this as suffering. It's an existential kind of suffering. So this one we don't understand maybe as readily as the others. It's a subtler level of suffering. We look at how we take the passing experiences of life and appropriate them as me or mine. And the contraction of 
heart and mind that happens when we do that. That too is dukkha, a sense of bondage, limiting who and what we are. So what are we to do with this truth of dukkha? Our practice suggests that we turn towards dukkha, towards this truth about life to understand it deeply. And as I said before, and as you all know, this is not our usual stance towards dukkha. So we're swimming against the stream here. We're trying something a little bit different. I think we live in a culture, or at least uh, my experience of the a culture of, of America, of the United States, is it's a culture that really denies dukkha, denies suffering. I read somewhere that somebody wrote, the true religions of America are optimism and denial. <laughs> I read another uh, quote somewhere, I remember where I saw this, America, a country where everything is done to prove that life isn't tragic. You can even see this uh, denial of suffering in commercials. There's one that I saw uh, a number of years ago on TV. It was, um, I think it was for uh, aspirin or something. A woman has a headache and she says, how much tolerance do I have for pain? Zero tolerance. Say no to pain. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, zero tolerance. <laughs> well, that's not what we're suggesting around here. <laughs> we even deny, we're, we're deny death in this uh, culture. I read something about a new thing called CR, caloric restriction to live longer. And one woman said that it's until we eradicate the greatest cause of death, aging. <laughs> <laughs> we all deny aging might just be subtler I remember a few years ago I took my goddaughter on a picture uh, on a trip to Paris and um, she was showing me the pictures afterwards and there was this picture with this woman with a lot of white hair and I kind of looked and I was like really the first thought was who is that and then it's it's me! <laughs> was like, oh. <laughs> I swear to God, when I look in the mirror, I see myself about 15 years younger. You know, so we all, it's, 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 it's ingrained, I think, in all of us. Or another way that we deny dukkha is that we think it's, um, we think that suffering is some kind of personal deficiency. It's one of our cultural myths that there's something wrong with us if we're suffering. Instead of seeing that this is just a part of life, the Buddha said dukkha happens. It's inherent in human existence. We suffer more by trying to deny the reality of life. 
than accepting it in all of its fullness. The truth wants to be known. It pushes at us. There's this dynamic tension within us between the truth of dukkha wanting to be known and our habitual conditioning that clings to control and security and a limited range of experience in life to maintain that security. So it's right in the middle of this that we practice. For me, it was a tremendous relief to hear about dukkha the first time that I read about Buddhism. To hear it put so plainly, so um, straightforward. I was 23 years old and living in Nicaragua at the time teaching English, and uh, another teacher gave me um, a gradual awakening by Stephen Levine. And I, and I was reading it, and it, you know, there's a lot about dukkha in there. I was like, yes, this is great. Somebody's telling it like it is. I felt such a sense of relief. I think we're often drawn to practice also because of suffering, that we're suffering and it motivates us to want to find a way to cultivate some peace of mind. So suffering can inspire us to search. Ajahn Chah says, there are two kinds of suffering. The first is the suffering that causes more suffering that we repeat over and over. The second is the suffering that comes when we stop running. The second kind is the suffering that can lead to freedom. So that's what we're doing here, right? We stop running. We stop and look at suffering so that we can understand it. The famous Christian um, hermit Thomas Merton said, if I am called to the solitary life, we could say like a retreat, if I'm called to the solitary life, it does not necessarily mean I will suffer more acutely in solitude than anywhere else, but that I will suffer more effectively. <laughs> so we hope you're suffering very effectively here. <laughs> Another uh, teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck, one of my favorite Zen teachers, called retreat controlled suffering. Sometimes it's not so controlled. Sometimes it's a bit like a pressure cooker. We heat up the suffering here. We really won't engage with suffering if we think there's another way out. It's not usually our first choice, what to do with this truth. So here we take away most of the ways out most of our usual distractions and ways that we might try to avoid this truth aren't, aren't so present. It's set up on purpose that way, so that we'll suffer effectively. There's a delightful book about Suzuki Roshi, a Zen master called, um, the book's called To Shine on One Corner of the World. And um, 
There's a little story for you all. On the fourth day of Seishin, or a retreat, we sat with our painful legs, aching backs, hopes and doubts about whether it was worth it. Suzuki Roshi began his talk by saying slowly, the problems you are now experiencing will go away, we were sure he was going to say. We'll continue for the rest of your life, he concluded. <laughs> the way he said it, we all laughed. He's pointing towards meeting the truth of dukkha effectively. So now that I've convinced you all that it's worth it to uh, meet this truth of dukkha, now I'll talk about the three kinds of dukkha that the Buddha um, described. And they're loosely linked to the, they're not the same as the three kinds I just said in the Four Noble Truths, but they're, they're loosely linked. So there's some correspondence you'll see. Now the first kind that he describes is pretty much the same as the first kind in the, in the First Noble Truth. And this, tr this kind of dukkha we call dukkha dukkha. And this, uh, again, is the suffering um, that we experience uh, through the physical form, the body, and through the mind, the mental form. So physical and mental suffering, pain and unpleasantness. So in our practice, we meet this dukkha as, as the instructions uh, tell us to. We connect with bare attention to the experience of the unpleasantness or pain in the body or mind. We connect with, the, with bare attention and we notice how it changes and we notice the attitude present in the mind when we are connecting with the pain. So we, we, we develop understanding of where is the suffering in this experience. Is the suffering in the bare experience or is the suffering in the aversion to the experience? We investigate that for ourselves to understand. So if we have a pain in the knee, is the suffering the painful sensation? Or is the suffering wanting the pain to go away? This is what I mean by we try to develop understanding of dukkha. To do this kind of um, investigation, to be willing to feel the unpleasantness in the body and the sorrow, lamentation, despair, anger, fear, loneliness, sadness in the mind takes a lot of courage. <laughs> this kind of self-awareness isn't always as pretty as we'd like. Brad Warner in Hardcore Zen says, Meditation, Zazen, he says, because it's Zen, but meditation isn't about blissing out or going into an alpha brain waves trance. It's about facing who and what you really are in every single damn moment. And you aren't just bliss. I'll tell you that right now. You're a mess. <laughs> we all are. 
But here's the thing, that mess is itself enlightenment. So we go through the messiness, we go through the pain and the unpleasantness. It's said that dukkha is like the bitter medicine that leads to health. Sometimes the medicine doesn't taste so good, but it leads to health. So we learn to relax into this kind of dukkha. We learn to relax into the pain in the body, relax into it, open to it. We learn to relax into the emotional pain or the mental pain. Dukkha's our best teacher. It won't go away just because we want it to. It's kind of like a fierce Zen master. It certainly holds our attention. And we have to deal with it until we make peace with it. Sometimes I call it duking it out with dukkha. <laughs> we can even begin to welcome the challenges in our lives and in our practice as doorways to freedom. Struggle tells us where we're stuck and where we need to grow. At times, you may have noticed this, at times when practice is going well, our life is going well, we get kind of lackadaisical about, about searching for the truth. But when we're suffering, then we get interested, then we get motivated. So in this way, we can say that this suffering is a blessing for us. It's said that this human uh, realm is the best one for practice. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's, I think it's 32 realms of existence, and uh, we're fifth from the bottom. There's uh, four hell realms below us and a number of, quite a number of heaven realms above us, you could say. And the hell realms aren't so good for practice because there's too much suffering. It's too intense. When suffering's too intense, we can't get very interested in it. We can also experience these realms right in our own lives. And the heavenly realms aren't considered so great for suffering either because it's too pleasant. We kind of get uninterested. The human realm is considered perfect for practice because it's the right mixture of suffering and joy, happiness and sorrow. There's enough joy in a human life that, that we have energy to practice, to engage. And there's enough suffering that we are motivated to do so. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a verse that yogis say uh, when they begin to meditate. It goes something like this. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. Again, welcoming our challenges. 
because it's our challenges that teach us about freedom and our challenges that teach us about compassion. I know for me that health problems, health challenges have been my, some of my greatest teachers over the years, motivating me to practice and to understand the mind, heart, body, where I get stuck, how I can experience freedom even in the midst of having this human body that is troublesome at times. A number of years ago, about three years ago, I um, unexpectedly started suffering from some neurological problems. And I'd had a, um, a flu shot a few days before. They didn't really know why I had the, the neurological problems. Um, one doctor thought it might be an autoimmune reaction to the flu shot, which in, in which case I would get better. And another doctor came up with some kind of terrifying diagnoses, in which case I would not get better, but would get much worse. And there was no way I was going to know for months which one it was, because even if it was a scenario where I was going to get better, it was going to be slow, really slow. A couple years was what they said until I would, you know, recover. So I was really motivated to practice. It was, I was terrified. It was really um, scary because of the uncertainty. I didn't know. I didn't know if I had a really debilitating illness or if I had something that was going to get better. It was a great time for practice. I learned so much. I had to really learn how to work with the fear, the fear, the uncertainty, the not knowing the thoughts, the papancha of the mind, imagining a future that might not be so easy. Fortunately, it seems like it was the first choice that, that, um, that I, I, was, I had an autoimmune reaction to a flu shot that has mostly gone away. Um, but I learned a lot. And the truth is, as we age, we have these kinds of challenges more and more, right? We don't know what's going to happen with this body, when and how it's going to die. Can we hold that? So meeting, welcoming our challenges as doorways to freedom and understanding. But sometimes we won't feel so welcoming. Sometimes there's resistance. Sometimes we have no interest in meeting dukkha. Then we get to explore resistance. What's resistance like? Eventually we come to see that resistance is more suffering and that opening to dukkha is what allows freedom. But we can't hurry it. So we learn to relax into dukkha, whatever our personal struggle is, whether it's physical or emotional. And we see that the natural response, as we learn to relax and to open into these experiences, we see that the natural response of the heart is compassion. 
So we don't confront pain, but rather soften into it. Dealing with dukkha softens us. It cultivates compassion as we put suffering into context and feel connected to all others who suffer in a similar way. One time I was sitting in this hall and um, I was feeling lots of loneliness and I wasn't uh, real happy about it, but eventually I managed to like turn towards it and just feel it, feel what loneliness felt like and really allowed myself to accept it. And as I did that, I, I found that my mind and heart opened to the fact that there were lonely people all over the world at that same time and that all humans feel loneliness. It was great. Then I felt connected to others through that understanding, through that understanding of suffering. And it softened the heart. It's like, oh, loneliness, this too can be okay. So we all have our favorite, our, our special teachers. Our, 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 um, most of us have uh, our favorite dukkha. For me, it's been fear. Fear has been one of my best teachers over the years. A number of years ago, I was in um, Burma, and the teacher there gave a talk on um, 10 kinds of equanimity. I was really impressed by that, really thought that was pretty cool. And then I heard about another teacher in Thailand who talks about 20 kinds of silence. I thought, wow, that's really knowing silence. And then I thought, well, what do I know about? I thought, fear. I know a lot about fear. So I sat down to write a talk about as many kinds of fear as I could come up with. And when I first wrote the, wrote the talk, there were 12 kinds of fear, and now it's up to about 18. <laughs> 25 years of research into understanding fear. I've gotten very intimate with fear. I'm an expert on fear. But what's great about that is that with our exploration of our particular favorite dukkha, we find that these forms of suffering begin to lose their power. Fear no longer has the same power over me that it did years ago. Sometimes I see it coming and I'm like, oh, hello, <laughs> how are you today? <laughs> Fear's like, oh, where can I land here? I know that it'll pass because I've seen this over and over again with mindfulness. I understand through mindfulness that it's not me, it's not mine. So we use our understanding of impermanence and our understanding of anatta, selflessness, to help us in our exploration of dukkha. I know that uh, Joseph talked a few nights ago on no self or selflessness. These three, dukkha, impermanence, dukkha or anicca, impermanence, 
and anatta, dukkha, nicca, anatta, suffering, impermanence, and not self. They're said to be the three things that we must understand about life, how life is. And they work in tandem, they work together. So we can understand that dukkha will pass. We can understand that ultimately it's not me or mine. It's an arising condition that then passes away. But we have to be careful sometimes how we apply this understanding of impermanence or this understanding of not-self. If we disidentify, if we say, for example, this fear is not me or not mine, but we do it with any sense of aversion, that's not freedom. So if we say this fear is not me or not mine, but what we're really saying is I want this fear to go away, that's denial of what's happening. So then it's best that we investigate further. How can we learn to accept the truth of this unpleasant experience? So to have a balanced, well-grounded spiritual life, we have to know how to meet this kind of dukkha, this dukkha, dukkha, the pain and the sorrow with interest, understanding and compassion. So as we explore dukkha, we find that we have greater capacity to embrace the whole catastrophe, as it's sometimes called, with tenderness and compassion. We find that we feel more open and connected with life, and we find that we also feel more joy, peace, happiness, connectedness. It's like a package deal. When we open our hearts to dukkha, we also open our hearts to joy. So dukkha isn't depressing. An open heart, a heart that's open to dukkha, also means a heart that's open to all of life. And that includes joy and happiness and connection. So as I said, it's a softening of heart and mind. When we, when we don't reject dukkha, when we really meet it, the whole, wholesome response of the heart-mind is compassion or care. a responsiveness of heart, a heart large enough to include dukkha without aversion. There's a, one of my favorite heroes in life is a woman named Eddie Hillisom. She wrote a a diary that was published after she died called An Interrupted Life. She was a young woman in uh, Amsterdam during the Second World War, a young Jewish woman. And uh, she wrote a, a diary over two years. And it uh, explores kind of the maturation of compassion within her by meeting the dukkha, the suffering that was happening for her people at the, this time when um, Hitler's army was overtaking uh, her city. And um, 
she starts out the book, uh, she seems like a somewhat, her, her diary starts out, she seems like a somewhat, uh, maybe a little bit like a kind of self-absorbed young lady. And by the end of this uh, diary, she's, um, her heart is so large and uh, her compassion so strong. She served as an inspiration for many, many people. And this is what she has to say about suffering. She says, You must be able to bear your sorrow. Even if it seems to crush you, you will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong. And your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in itself that is its due. For if everyone bears grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. And if you have given sorrow the space it demands, then you may truly say, life is beautiful and so rich. And this in the midst of horrible persecution of her own people. When we can open to dukkha, our hearts are open to dukkha, we can say that life is so beautiful and so rich. So at the same time as we um, meet dukkha, this dukkha dukkha, we also don't have to make um, uh, make an agenda out of it either. We just take what life presents us as it presents. There's another story from the same book from Suzuki Roshi. In the middle of a seishin, Suzuki Roshi spoke in a lecture about the pain that everyone is experiencing, especially in their legs from the long hours of sitting. Pain is your teacher, he said. Later that day in interview, a student started talking to him about how much she felt she was growing because of trying to master pain. He stopped her and said, pain is tedious. <laughs> the freedom of dealing with this level of dukkha has increased spaciousness and peace in our lives less agitation and, and more peace as we feel that um, there's less need to deny or to hide or to avoid or to run from unpleasant experiences in life. Fear, I can do it. Pain, I can do that too. No need to run, less agitation, more rest, more peace, more openness. So let's move on to the second kind of dukkha. It gets a little more subtle. The second kind of dukkha is called viparinama dukkha. And this is the dukkha associated with change. This is where the Buddha specialized. This is where 
um, we get a little beyond the uh, um, conventional understanding of dukkha. And this is the dukkha that we find even in pleasant experiences. So we've been talking about the dukkha of unpleasant experiences. This is the dukkha of pleasant experiences. Even what is pleasant contains the seeds of dukkha because it changes, because of impermanence, because of anicca. The Buddha didn't deny that life has its beautiful moments, but he said that even these are tinged with dukkha because they will end and you can't hold on. So this translation of dukkha is sometimes um, given as unsatisfactoriness. That things of this mundane world will not ultimately satisfy us because they keep changing. So unreliability is sometimes also used. We can't depend on pleasantness to save us. It can't be our refuge in this world because all things are unreliable. The edginess of knowing this is viparinama dukkha. So this is a kind of existential dukkha. As we look more deeply into this second kind of suffering, we're looking not just at suffering and pain and sorrow, obviously unpleasant situations, but also the suffering in pleasant experiences. Now we easily get fooled by pleasant experiences. Have you ever had a pleasant sitting and then tried to recreate it? I'm assuming most of you have done that. It's like, huh, let's see, what did I do today? I had, oh, I only had one egg for breakfast instead of two. And I went in the back door of the hall instead of the front door. And we try to recreate it, right? Figure out what all the conditions are so that we could get back our pleasant sitting. Well, then you know this kind of dukkha. Or we're walking in the woods and we're looking at the beautiful um, colors and we know that they will end. Viparinama dukkha. So a lot of times we think that if we can just keep pleasantness coming, that we can keep it continuing, that then we can avoid suffering. We have to see that that doesn't work because of impermanence. It's, it's interesting how, how um, easily we can get deluded here. I know there's still times when I'm happy, and I can still believe in a deluded kind of way that I'll be happy the rest of my life. It still seems like that, that when I'm really happy that that's true. That's so obviously not true. <laughs> or with my health, I, I, like I have a kind of sensitive body, and so sometimes when you know, I'm feeling really great, my body's right on, it's like, oh yeah, this is the way it's going to be the rest of my life. It's like, no, I don't think so, because things change. When I was in uh, Burma a couple years ago, we asked one of the sayadaws there about Westerners and how we could help them deepen their practice, and he said, 
that Westerners must be willing to see the rising and passing away of phenomena in order to develop dispassion or freedom from clinging. We must be willing to see the rising and passing away of phenomena. That's really what we do in practice. We're seeing the rising and passing away of everything keeps changing. If we see this clearly, we can let go of the illusion that we can create happiness and freedom through manipulating circumstances to be pleasant all the time. The continual hope that there's some kind of permanent happiness where there's not. And to be free, to feel freedom, we have to understand this. Charlotte Joko Beck again. Practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. Now, I don't expect you to be totally excited about this news. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life, so I don't want you to... um, get the wrong idea. It doesn't mean that, oh, now we're going to be depressed and dreary because pleasant things aren't going to deliver. No. We can still enjoy pleasantness in life, but we can't rely on it as a strategy for freedom or for permanent happiness. It can't be our refuge. So understanding impermanence deeply is a great support for understanding viparinama dukkha. So really seeing the arising and passing away keeps changing. One Zen master calls practice active participation in loss. The passing away. This level of investigation takes a deep commitment to the truth. We are often happy to investigate dukkha when things are unpleasant, but not always so thrilled when it's pleasant. We'd rather get lost. So that's why it takes such a commitment to um, investigate this level of dukkha. Making peace with this kind of dukkha, we find increased equanimity in our lives. We're less blown about by the changing circumstances of life. We learn to rest more easily in the flow of life, the continual change. The Buddha said, praise and blame, gain and loss, Pleasure and sorrow come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. When we quit depending on pleasant experiences to be our salvation, then we develop this increased stability like a great tree in the midst of all the changes of life. 
Again, more peace. Less agitation and restlessness of running around looking for what the next hit will be that will do it. More freedom. So the last kind of dukkha is called Sankara dukkha. This is the subtlest kind and perhaps the most difficult to understand. This is a suffering, it said, the suffering due to formations or the suffering um, due to the continual rising and passing away of phenomena. It's, it's different than the, um, the uh, other one I just mentioned in that it's really about um, the stressful nature of taking birth, the stressful nature of having um, a body that's conditioned phenomena. So it's like uh, the suffering and stress of the constant movement of the mind and the stress of the constant impact on sense doors. Another example given is just takes so much maintenance to keep this body going. That's a form of Sankara Dukkha. And sometimes you can really um, tune into this kind of Dukkha um, on retreat. Sometimes it'll, it'll become very apparent. But you know, just to keep this body going, we have to do so much. We have to rest it and feed it and clean it and <laughs> and give it something to drink. <laughs> and uh, it just um, it's pretty it's pretty relentless. This is sankara dukkha. In classical Sanskrit, the term dukkha was often compared to a large potter's wheel that would screech as it was spun around and didn't turn smoothly. So Sankara dukkha is a little bit like that kind of level of dukkha. Or sometimes I think of it like a refrigerator hum. If you're sitting in the kitchen and the refrigerator's on, you don't really notice it until it turns off. And then when the refrigerator turns off, you notice like, oh, that was oppressive. I think Sankara's kind of, Dukkha's kind of the same way. We don't really realize kind of the oppressive nature until we experience some freedom from it. So when this kind of Dukkha um, becomes apparent to us, it also um, increases our commitment to looking deeper into what causes suffering and where's freedom. And it takes a, a deeper commitment again to the truth to look at this level of suffering. We start seeing that any clinging to a sense of self perpetuates this kind of dukkha. So any clinging to the five aggregates perpetuates this kind of dukkha. And through our understanding, we start to see that the root cause of suffering is craving and clinging. But that's another story that you're going to hear about in a few days. So through understanding dukkha and clinging, we're motivated to let go. And we realize the third noble truth, the second noble truth is craving, which you'll hear about in a few days. We realize the third noble truth, the, the truth of freedom from suffering. And as we let go on deeper and deeper levels, 
We know the freedom of Nibbana, what the Buddha called the unshakable liberation of mind and heart, the deepest kind of peace. Someone once asked Suzuki Roshi, I know I keep mentioning him, but he's got these good one-liners, um, asked him what Nibbana is, and Suzuki Roshi replied, seeing one thing through to the end. So what we're seeing through to the end is dukkha. Dukkha, its causes, and its release. So ultimately, I hope you will um, see that this is a... Um, optimistic talk. <laughs> Please remember that. <laughs> so, Dukkha. Dukkha as our teacher, Dukkha as our motivator, Dukkha as the way to freedom. So we let life teach us as it presents Dukkha to us over and over again. It seems to never fail to have Dukkha to present to us, to learn from, to find the great um, deepest heart's release. I'd like to end with just a little poem by uh, Rumi. Come, come whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. It doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come, come even if you have broken your vows a thousand times, come. Come yet again, come. Let's sit for a minute. May our exploration of dukkha lead to the deepest kind of freedom. <laughs>